Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Greetings and peace, everyone. Salaam alaikum. It is such a pleasure for me to be here at the New York University Abu Dhabi Institute. Thank you all so much for being here this evening. This is my third time in Abu Dhabi. I was here first at the Forum for Promoting Peace in Muslim Societies back in 2018, and then I visited again a couple years after that. So it is so good to be back, especially in light of what we all have been through and the world has been through in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. As Nahed mentioned, it is such a, a great um, honor for me right now to be the first speaker at NYU Abu Dhabi Institute to speak on Prophet Muhammad. And I imagine many folks would find this to be quite unique. Here is Craig Considine from Needham, Massachusetts, outside of Boston, born and raised a Catholic, not knowing anything growing up about Islam, Islamic studies, the Quran, or Prophet Muhammad. And I take this honor very seriously given the greatness of Prophet Muhammad, whose life is going to be the focus of this talk today. I am going to provide largely a sociological overview of Muhammad's life. I will talk a little bit about theology and religion, but as a sociologist, I'm very interested in human relations. I'm very interested in the power that knowledge can bring us and give to us through human interaction. I think it's important for me to provide you with a couple more details about who I am and where I'm from. As I mentioned, I'm from the suburbs of Boston. I was 15 years old when 9-11 happened. The town that I am from, it's about 30,000 people. We have countless churches, a couple Catholic churches, various Protestant denominations. We have two synagogues, Temple Aliyah and Temple Beth Shalom, but no mosques. And I also didn't grow up with any Muslims, at least not to my knowledge. So when 9-11 happened, I was 15. As you might imagine, it's very difficult for someone in those shoes, without any exposure to Muslims or Islam, to make any sense of what was being delivered to us through the media. Unfortunately, I took the Islamophobic bait. So the media is telling us Islam is inherently violent. 
that Muslims wish harm on America. It was very difficult me, for me to divorce myself from these views because I had no context. So as I grew older and I get to college, I'm now 18, I was actually a basketball player. I went to college to play basketball. And obviously, I'm not in the NBA. That didn't work out too well. But I was curious as to why something like 9-11 happened. And I was also curious about these media narratives. We were being told that Muslims hate us, that Islam does not stand for American values. And I was genu uh, genuinely curious, like, why? So I transfer from the college that I was playing basketball in, and I moved to Washington, DC, the kind of center of the American political system. And I started taking Arabic courses. And I took a class called Islam 101. And you can imagine my family members being used to me as a basketball player had no idea what was actually happening. They were a little concerned, actually. What is he doing? And I suppose at the time, I didn't really know what I was doing either. It was a leap of faith. I was trying to understand what was happening in our world. So I get into a class at American University called the World of Islam. It's essentially an Islam 101 class. And it was taught by Ambassador Akbar Ahmed. Ambassador Ahmed is the Ibn Khaldun Chair of Islamic Studies at American University. And he's an anthropologist. And Dr. Ahmed is a huge proponent of interfaith dialogue. But I didn't know any of that when I stepped into the class. I stepped into that class thinking, all right, let's hear about Osama bin Laden. Let's hear about Al-Qaeda. That was my perspective. So I get to class. That first five minutes in which Dr. Ahmed was captivating us as students, he just starts talking about knowledge or ilm in Arabic, the importance of ilm in the Islamic tradition. And it, I was completely floored. We weren't talking about the Quran. We weren't talking about 9-11 or the Taliban or Afghanistan. We weren't talking about any of that. We were talking about the importance of knowledge. And Professor Ahmed shared the Hadith, which still to this day has a profound impact on how I live my life. The ink of the scholar is more sacred than the blood of the martyr. The ink of the scholar is more sacred than the blood of the martyr. Muhammad is saying there's a sacred duty to learn. And not merely the learning that we do, let's say, in a classroom at NYU Abu Dhabi with your peer-reviewed journal articles and your essays and your exams and your books. There's also a different type of knowledge that we accumulate through our lived experiences, through our engagement with other human beings, through breaking bread with people, having conversations with people. So 
I was captivated by the power of that type of knowledge, not just the peer-reviewed book stuff, the power of learning through people, through traveling, through visiting, in homes, places of worship, and in businesses. So I went with it, and I continued my studies. As Nehad, you had mentioned, I studied in London, and then I did my PhD in Dublin. In 2013, almost, you know, 10 years ago almost, I came across a book that finally brought me in direct line with Prophet Muhammad. My studies before 2013 were largely centered on international relations and politics understanding why the United States invaded Iraq and Afghanistan and all that stuff. But I came across a book in 2013. It was called The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of His Time. And this is a book published by another scholar, John Andrew Morrow. So I got a hold of this book and I knew absolutely nothing really outside of the basics of Muhammad's life, but I didn't even know that he engaged with Christians, that he actually had real lived experiences, real world experiences with these Christians. Now think to yourselves, 2013, what was happening in the world in 2013? A group like ISIS, unfortunately, was running rampant, especially near this part of the world. We had a historic city, Mosul, in Iraq. Very significant for Christians as well, being completely overrun and destroyed. Historic churches being knocked down. As these things were happening, I was reading this book, The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of His Time. And in these covenants that Muhammad had agreed to with various Christian communities, Muhammad, peace be with him, was explicitly calling for the protection of churches. So telling Muslims, don't knock down churches. That's antithetical to your faith, to your mission, to being a Muslim. And the covenants went even further than this. It's not just saying, don't knock down churches. It's also saying, if they fall into repair, you should build them up. One of the reasons why I have so much confidence in UAE as a country leading the charge in terms of Christian-Muslim relations is what the UAE had done in reviving the spirit of Mosul. Has anyone heard of this project, Reviving the Spirit of Mosul? It was a UNESCO-based project, so it's a part of the UN, initiated in 2017 after the three-year occupation of Mosul by ISIS. It was occupied for three years. The Christians were basically kicked out, their churches ruined, and they were faced with either having to convert, uh, leave, or pay a jizya. 
or the tax. The UAE government gave $50 million to the people of Mosul to rebuild these historic churches that were destroyed by ISIS. This, can you imagine what that would mean to the people of Mosul? So Muhammad's spirit, his teachings, his legacy are not dead. We know that. And we know that through acts like the UAE government providing all of these funds to reviving the spirit of Mosul. By the way, you know what Mosul means in Arabic? It's like a bridge. It's like a crossroad. Mosul has always been a place where civilizations come together, where Christians, Muslims, and people of various walks of life can live in harmony. That's why ISIS chose it, because it was a symbol of what we can do, what humanity can do, what we can achieve when we tolerate each other. Muhammad's life and legacy is not dead. I want to focus primarily today on three sociological concepts. The first one is this idea of civic nation building. Civic nation building. Let's start by focusing on what civic nation building is not. It is not designing a country or a nation around exclusive notions of race, ethnicity, or religion, or even culture. A classic case of the opposite of a civic nation would be like a racial nation. Think Nazi Germany, the Third Reich. It was so explicit when we talk about race that even people like me, I'm sure everyone is looking probably at me and saying, okay, he's white, but I'm Irish and Italian and I'm Catholic. I would not have been safe in Nazi Germany. There's no chance. So in a racial state, your fate is determined the minute you're born. And that is your place in society. Muhammad is disrupting all of that. Growing up in a hyper-tribal society in 6th century and early 7th century Arabia. A hyper-tribal society. Again, in which your place in that society was determined by what tribe you're part of. So the idea of uh, tribal equality or racial equality or ethnic equality was just unheard of essentially. So we have the year 622. Seven years after the first Hijra. Muhammad, being known as a wise and conscious, let's say, jurist, someone who had the ability to look at justice in an objective way, He's invited to Yathrib, which he later names Medina, the enlightened city. And he is invited to Yathrib essentially as a peacemaker. 
as someone who can resolve the generations-long tribal feud, not merely amongst the Oz and Khazraj, the pagan tribe, but also there were Jewish tribes as well, the Nader, the Kanuka, and so on. So you had Jews fighting Jews, you had pagans fighting pagans, and you had pagans fighting Jews. So it was, in short, a mess. This is 622. Muhammad gets to Yathrib. And I always love thinking about simple visions. What was the first thing that Muhammad did, knowing that this was his role when he got to Yathrib? The first thing he did is says, okay, let's bring everyone together, kind of in a room like this. Let's bring people together and let's air out our grievances. Let's talk about what's gone wrong, but let's talk about what can go right. Out of this initial deliberation comes the Constitution of Medina. The Constitution of Medina has been categorized by scholars as one of the first constitutions in world history. Constitution meaning civic rights, democratic rights, freedom of religion, the ability to have a say in how you're governed. This is what Muhammad did with the Constitution of Medina in 622. And you can Google it. You can find the whole Constitution. If you were walking in earlier, you'll see some of my books outside. In the appendix of both of these books, I made sure to include the Constitution of Medina. And it explicitly says that Jews, pagans, Muslims are entitled to freedom of worship, freedom of religion, the right to assembly, the right to live in peace, the right for religious communities to dictate how they want to live without government interference. And everyone signed up for it. So this is a multicultural, multiracial, multi-religious state in 622. And I always love to tell audiences, or let's say remind audiences, that this idea that like the West, which is really a crude term that does no good, the West, Western civilization, is somehow having a monopoly over things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to assembly. But Muhammad did it in 622. Now, of course, we also have to recognize, as I do as a scholar, the Constitution of Medina broke apart. It didn't last very long. But it's also critically important to note that it didn't dissolve because people had different ideas on religion or even race or ethnicity. It was largely a political issue. Essentially, Muhammad was being backstabbed. He was being mistreated by people that he actually believed in. Think about what's happening around the world. The civic nation is under threat in a lot of this world that we share with each other. 
you have a country like Hungary with Viktor Orban, which is pretty much categorically defining the nation of Hungary along racial, ethnic, cultural, religious lines. And it's very difficult for any of us in this room to go to a country like Hungary and to belong because the nation has already been determined and the nation was determined by who you are or who you were when you were born. So Muhammad broke all of that. He created a contract. Anyone could belong to the Ummah. Anyone could belong to that First Nation so long as they believed in these principles, these constitutional principles, these human right principles. So the civic nation can, can never be underestimated. I think it's one of the best pathways of dealing with diversity. How can we possibly live in nations and countries if we demarcate belonging around how you were born? It's not feasible, it's not realistic, and it's not wise. Point number two this second sociological concept is religious pluralism. Now, many of you may have heard this term pluralism before, and typically it's treated as one who believes that all religions are equal, right? That ultimately we, despite our religious differences, are all going to the same spot this higher power or God, right? So if you're a pluralist, you would be one who says, you know, all religions are equal. But that's not how I address pluralism. I take insight from a Harvard University scholar named Diana Eck. And at Harvard, Diana Eck, Professor Eck, runs the Harvard Pluralism Project. And again, a simple Google search can pull up some really good information here. So Professor Eck is saying that pluralism is not this idea that all religions are equal. Pluralism is actually something that we as human beings actively do, physically do, that we can engage in. And it's not tolerance. There's a big difference here. We have tolerance and we have pluralism. Professor Eck is saying pluralism goes beyond tolerance. Think about it. When you tolerate the behavior of a loved one, let's say they have like a bad habit, and you do it, you, you, you accept it, you tolerate it because it makes things a little bit easier, but you never really deal with it. Or let's say, you're in a situation, you're at an, at an event, and let's say you're a minority, and let's say you feel like you're merely being tolerated. There's no real wholesome sense of belonging when you're just merely tolerated. Being merely tolerated can hurt your self-esteem. Right? Who wants to be merely tolerated? So pluralism goes beyond tolerance. 
to be someone who engages in pluralism, pluralism, you have to have that tolerance, but it's more than that. And Professor Eck refers to it as the energetic engagement with religious diversity. I'll repeat that. The energetic engagement with religious diversity. That's what pluralism is according to my scholarship. That's how I define it. So we're talking about things that we do as humans, with our feet, with our bodies. We engage with people. We meet with people. We break bread with people. We don't merely say, okay, we have four different religious communities. We're going to put one here, one there. We'll put one over here in this corner, and we'll put another here in this corner. So we're going to tolerate each other. Everyone just goes and chills in their corner. But there's no interaction because everyone's just left alone. Pluralism is when we all meet right in the middle and we engage with one another. And this is what Muhammad did. And the example that I love to use links back to the year 630. So two years before Prophet Muhammad passed away. And the story, as many of you may be familiar with, revolves around a group called the Christians of Nadran. Nadran, thank you, sir. Nadran, hopefully my pronunciation is a little better. All that Arabic apparently didn't pay off for me. Nadran, so modern day, northern Yemen, southern Saudi Arabia. Now, the Christians of Nadran, for two centuries before 630, were under violent persecution by a group called the Himyarite Kingdom. And the Himyarite Kingdom was a Jewish kingdom. And there were conflicts between the Himyarites and the Christians of Nudran. The Christians of Nudran ended up being on the unfortunate side of the conflict where they were not only being persecuted, but they were being violently attacked. And there were horrible stories about massacres and some of these disastrous things that groups like ISIS engaged with. But now we're in the year 630. Muhammad is emerging as a global leader, regional leader, political figure. He's announcing himself to the various relevant political players around the Arabian Peninsula. And he writes a letter to the bishop of the, or the leader of the Christians of Nadran. And the way the Islamic sources kind of paint it, at first the Christians of Nadran refused to accept the invitation because Muhammad had invited them to Medina. And the Christians of Nadran apparently said no to the first invite, but Muhammad being persistent sends another letter and this time they accept the invitation. So we have a delegation depending on what type of Islamic sources you're looking at, maybe about 80 people from the Christians of Nadran. Eight, let's refer to it as a diplomatic mission. Scholars, bishops, and other learned people. And they go to Nadran. Uh, they go to Medina, excuse me, for three days. So the fact that it went for three days, this diplomatic event, is a good sign. Because it could have easily ended on the first day. But it went for three days. And on the third day, the sources tell us that 
the Christians of Najran had uh, informed Muhammad and the early uh, Muslim leaders that they needed to pray. And they said, you know, Muhammad, we are going to leave the masjid. They were, they were in the Prophet's mosque in Medina. And Muhammad stops them, essentially in their, in their track, and said, you know, why would you go outside when you're already in a house of God? Please use this space to pray. Okay, so that's not tolerance. That's something more than tolerance, right? And you know, the reason why I love this story is because I really think it centers around hospitality. Making people feel like they belong, as we were just talking about. Treating others how you wish to be treated, the golden rule. So Muhammad, in doing this, in allowing this community to pray inside his spot, he's, he's not sending any signals necessarily to Muslims about anything dogmatic or theological or even religious. He's just saying, being hospitable is part of your faith. And that, to me, is very moving. It reminds me of the spirit of Jesus. And also, another part of this story with the pluralism. The Christians and the Muslims engage in a very enthusiastic discussion on Jesus. So Muhammad and the Muslims are saying, okay, listen, we don't really believe in the concept of the Trinity. We think it's excessive. And the Christians had their perspective uh, as well. Though I must say, in my book, which is outside, People of the Book, I actually argued that the Christians of Najran were not Trinitarian Christians, which might be difficult for some people to wrap their head around. They were actually more monotheistic Christians. But nevertheless, they engaged in a very fruitful dialogue on the divinity of Jesus, which is not an easy topic. So pluralism is not just being hospitable, it's also having difficult conversations with people over something like the divinity of Jesus. So if we just tolerated it, right? You would say, okay, you think this way about Jesus, I think this way, you have the right to do that, I have the right to do this, I respect you, and that's it. But you don't really learn about why people have this position and why people have this position. So the pluralism as I mentioned, it is about our bodies, you know, being hospitable, bringing people in, but it's also doing difficult work, which is having difficult conversations. And we can do this in a respectful, humane, and civil manner. That's how true growth happens, when you can really understand why a group or a person holds a certain position. Civic nation building, we covered it. Pluralism, we covered it. Third one, anti-racism. Anti-racism needs to be treated in a similar manner as civic nation and religious pluralism in the sense that it has its opposite. So uh, the opposite of the civic nation is the racial state. The opposite of pluralism is tolerance, but again, tolerance is a good thing. 
You need tolerance to get to pluralism. The opposite of anti-racism would merely be non-racism. So I often ask my students when I teach this subject, I ask them, okay, by a show of hands, who in here is a non-racist? You know, most people are immediately like, I'm not racist. But if you ask someone if they're an anti-racist, people start thinking a little bit, well, what does that mean? The difference between non and anti. Non is more neutral. Anti is a little something different, a little aggressive in a good way, like the distinguishing point between tolerance and pluralism. Muhammad was an anti-racist. Very clearly an anti-racist. His views on racial equality are a lot more pronounced and documented than Jesus's. And this is one of the reasons why I really admire Muhammad, because I care deeply about racial equality. And I know Jesus would stand for racial equality, but we don't have the receipts for it. But with Muhammad's life, we have a lot of stories pertaining to his emphasis on anti-racism. So there's a couple of key examples to focus on. Number one is the relationship that he had with Bilal ibn Rabbah. Okay? Bilal ibn Rabbah was reported to have been Ethiopian, essentially, or Abyssinian, and half Arab. So he was darker. He was darker featured. And Bilal was enslaved at the time, uh, right before Muhammad's uh, acceptance of the Quranic revelation in 610 through Angel Gabriel. So Bilal emerges as one of the steadfast believers of this movement called Islam. And Muhammad saw in Bilal not his skin or his ancestral background or even potentially his DNA. He saw character and conduct. So much so that Bilal was essentially freed by Muhammad and Abu Bakr from the chains of slavery. Muhammad worked to purchase Bilal so that he was no longer enslaved. Like that's not a non-racist person. That's someone who's taking deliberate action. Now, the best part of the Bilal story, when we talk about it through the prism of anti-racism, is the following. Muhammad didn't merely free Bilal. He liberated Bilal. There's a difference between being free and liberated. Liberated is much more intensive. Muhammad designed, through the glory of God, the type of society that would allow Bilal to flourish. So he didn't just free him. He said, listen, now we have this society, we have this environment, you can reach your maximum potential. And that's what Bilal did. Bilal ends up being one of the most influential members of the early Ummah. He was the first muezzin. And he served a lot of different functions. Now, as an American, this means a lot to me. 
because the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, issued by President Lincoln, a great person, a great leader, freed the slaves. Two years later, the Civil War ends. The United States wins, the Confederacy loses. Now, all of a sudden, all of these slaves are freed. But what happens? Many of them are stuck in the southern part of the United States, and the government in these states initiated laws to restrict people, like the former slaves, from maximizing their potential. So Muhammad did a lot more than just free people. He liberated people. Think about the final or farewell sermon. So here we have Muhammad being a person of, of uh, words, of giving advice. This is the last thing he told his people. And the farewell sermon is pretty short, if you've read it. It's not very long. But one of the key features of the farewell sermon, as he is feeling like he's about to depart this world, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, an Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab. White has no superiority over non-white. Black has no superiority over non-black, except in piety and good action. That's 632, Muhammad gave these words. Let me go back again to me being an American. In 1963, the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., during the Civil Rights Movement, gives a speech at the Lincoln Memorial. And if you've been to the Lincoln Memorial, right at the top of those stairs, as you're overlooking a, a beautiful mall, is a little plaque. It says, I have a dream speech. And do you know what Dr. King said in this speech? A part of it? Essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, I hope that one day my children will grow up in this country where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. It's the same thing. And I always challenge audiences, if you can find some type of evidence in which Dr. King was motivated by Prophet Muhammad, I would love to see that. Perhaps he was. He was in spirit. That's God working. Now, these examples I gave, Constitution of Medina, the visit of the Christians of Nadran, and Bilal and the farewell sermon. These are three really simple examples that not merely remind us of how relevant Prophet Muhammad's timeless teachings are today. We know that, because much of what I said is happening around our world. But even bigger than that, these are examples that really discredit the clash of civilizations. The clash of civilizations. This idea that there is the Western world and there's the Islamic world, and somehow these two entities are on a collision course together. My friends, this is an intellectual fallacy to think this way. What about that middle ground? Think about a Venn diagram that middle ground of a Venn diagram where the values from the West and Islam somehow come together and become one. I hope that the points that I raise with Muhammad's life and legacy remind us 
of the glories of the Islamic tradition, but also the glories of Western civilization. The best of Islam is the best of the West, if we could see it that way. Now, as we gear up to end, a couple more things to remind you of when we talk about Muhammad's timeless gifts to humanity. I wrote an article in 2020 for the American publication Newsweek. Many of you are probably familiar with Newsweek. And the article was pretty simple. And I was just outlining Muhammad's advice during a pandemic. And a lot of people would say, well, Muhammad had no idea that you know, something like the Black Plague or COVID-19 would happen. No, but he did. He was divinely inspired, divinely guided. And there's one story that I think really captures um, the beauty of Muhammad. And it revolves around a brief camel ride that he had with one of his companions. And they were both kind of marching along and they decided to stop. Muhammad gets off his camel and he ties his camel. And the companion does the same thing. He gets off the camel, but he doesn't tie it. And Muhammad said, what are you doing? Aren't you going to tie your camel? And the follower said, oh, no, like I, have, I have complete faith in God. And Muhammad, you can imagine maybe patting him on the back, saying, I know you have faith in God, and you should have faith in God. But be rational. Be smart. Tie your camel. Just be rational. Muhammad said other things, too, when it comes to dealing with a pandemic. Muhammad said cleanliness is part of faith. Cleanliness is part of faith. He also gave specific recommendations on dealing with quarantine. Right? If you are sick, you should not go into an area to avoid transmitting the illness. So we see even something like COVID-19, it comes into our existence. But someone like Muhammad can be a guide to dealing with these things. And that's ultimately what we're talking about when we talk about timeless teachings. The last thing I'd like to say is how Muhammad's life and legacy relates to what is happening here in the UAE, a country that I have really been privileged to visit, as I've mentioned, to grow closer to, but also a country that I admire in terms of the initiatives that are being made. And I'm not just saying this to y'all to you know, sound good because I'm in the UAE. I believe in the spirit of Mosul, reviving the spirit of Mosul. We had Pope Francis being welcomed a few years ago to the UAE in which he and the Grand Imam El Tayeb of Al-Azhar University in Cairo wrote a document on human fraternity. This is another document I encourage you all to read in addition to the Constitution of Medina and the Farewell Sermon, a document on human fraternity. And really, it's calling us, regardless 
of whether you're Christian or Muslim or pagan or whatever it might be, to engage in what Pope Francis refers to as the culture of encounter, the culture of encountering one another, breaking bread with one another, spending time with one another. I've been so warmly invited to an Emirati home tomorrow night for the first time. I mean, it, that experience for me, I already know, is going to give me so much knowledge for the better because I have memories through people, through stories, through experience. And I hope this talk highlighted really simple things. Muhammad's relationships with people, how he engaged diplomatically, how he treated people not based on their race, religion, or ethnicity, but for the simple fact that they're human. And I will conclude by saying the following, to bring our Jewish brothers and sisters into the fold. When I think about Jesus, when I think about Muhammad, I think of kindred spirits. And in fact, Muhammad himself even said so, that they're essentially brothers from another mother. There's an ancient Hebrew saying it's called tikkun olam, T-I-K-K-U-N space olam, O-L-A-M. And it means to heal a fractured world, to heal a fractured world. Making sure that we as human beings, as community members, as politicians, and as leaders, we are making sure that the people who might be positioned on the periphery of our societies don't feel isolated, that they don't feel like they don't exist. We need leaders like Jesus and Muhammad to bring people together, to make them feel whole. If you can make someone feel whole, and you can make a lot of people feel whole, you're gonna have a stronger community. You're gonna have a stronger household, and you're gonna have a stronger nation. And that is really what it's all about. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.